Well, good morning. If you haven't opened up your Bibles, please open them up to Joshua chapter 3. We're going to be continuing our series this morning in the book of Joshua. You know, God has made many promises to his people. You find them all throughout the scriptures. And yet many of God's people live in spiritual poverty. We don't enjoy the provision of his promises. We don't live in the richness of what he's promised and described for us in the word of God. And this had been true for the nation of Israel until now. They'd left Egypt 40 years ago, and they'd been on a journey that had only was supposed to be a couple of weeks. We know from Deuteronomy chapter 1 that it's an 11-day journey from Horeb, where God met Moses at the burning bush, to Kadesh Barnea, the southernmost city in Canaan. But instead of taking 11 days, they went around 40 years. And for most of those 40 years... For 38 of those 40 years, they lived in fear of the people who inhabited the land of Canaan. You see, 38 years before, they'd sent out 12 spies for 40 days to spy out the land. And 10 had come back and said, yes, the land is a good land, a land just as God had described, but there are giants in the land. Only Joshua and Caleb said, yes, the people are strong, but God will bring us in. But the other 10 spies, they convinced the people and they turned back and they spent 38 years in the wilderness, during which time every one of the men over 20 years of age who had left Egypt died and was buried in the wilderness, with the sole exception of Caleb and Joshua. Well, now Moses himself had died and Joshua had been commissioned to replace him. And you'll remember from last week, the first thing that Joshua did is he sent two spies into the city of Jericho and they found lodging with this prostitute named Rahab, who lived on the city wall. And you remember that before they went to bed that night, Rahab came to visit them. And she said to them these words. She said, I know that the Lord has given you this land. Do you notice the tense of that verb? I know that the Lord has given you this land. And that great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in the country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt. Now, that was 40 years before. And what you did to Sidon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. That was only two or three weeks before the spies had come into Jericho. And Rahab said, when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. Do you know what the Israelites' problem was? Do you know why they didn't enter Canaan earlier? Do you know, as I said, it was only a journey of 11 days, but yet they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness? Well, their problem is a problem that you and I also have. You see, it was because the Israelites knew that God was God in the heavens above, but they did not equally know that he was the God on the earth below. So they could talk about the God up there, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his eternal nature. There are lots of revelation in the wilderness, which are in our books, uh, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But they never took what they knew about God in the heavens above and appropriated his strength his power in the earth below. And you know, this can be true for many Christian believers as well. We can dot our doctrinal I's and we can cross our doctrinal T's, and yet we can live in spiritual poverty and 
barrenness, with great heavenly anticipation, but very little earthly experience. We know that our God is the God of the heavens above, but not that he is the God on the earth below. You see, if your Sunday theology does not make a difference to your Monday workplace or to the quality of your marriage and family life, it's not a theology that's worth very much. It may be good for textbooks and it might be good to recite and it might be good in a creed. God's intent is that we always know him experientially in our day-to-day lives, that he's not just the God of the heavens above, but he's the God of the earth beneath. He is a God who is working, really working in our lives. And so as we come into Joshua chapter 3 and 4, we see God performs a miracle for Israel as they enter the promised land. But like all miracles in the Bible, the miracle has a point. You know, miracles are not just naked displays of God's power, but God performs miracles because he wants to teach his people something. And as we come in and we see this miracle that God performed for Israel as they entered the promised land, there's a miracle with a point. There was a miracle to teach them a very important lesson of how the God of the heavens above can be real on the earth below. So let's have a look at this lesson that God was teaching them. Look down your Bibles in Joshua chapter 3 and verse 1. We read this. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. So so Joshua and all the people have come up to the edge of the Jordan, and there is this barrier between them and entering to the promised land, the river Jordan. What are they going to do? Well, look down in verse 2, at the end of three days, so they've been waiting for three days, at the end of the three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, you shall set out from your place and you shall follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before. So Joshua says, I'm not going to give you a GPS and I'm not going to give you a map, but you're just going to follow the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Now, why was that so significant? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was simply a rectangular box that was made of acacia wood, and it was covered in gold. On the top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were these two cherubim. Now, there are different species of angels in the Bible. The only species that have wings are the cherubim. These two cherubim were touching one another on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, And between them was the mercy seat, the place where the blood would be poured on the day of atonement to make atonement for the people. And when God told Moses to make this piece of furniture for the tabernacle back in the wilderness, the reason it was so significant is because it represented the presence of God amongst the people. God had said to Moses, there in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant is, which represents my my presence, there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you. And the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place behind a curtain. And only once a year, the high priest was allowed to enter into that holy place to pour blood on the mercy seat, to make atonement, as I said, for the sins of the people. 
And the officers said, now you need to keep your distance. You need to keep 2,000 cubits of distance between you and the Ark of the Covenant. Now that is about 8.5 soccer fields, about one kilometer. So, as, so there, there, there are the people, and about one kilometer in the distance is the Ark of the Covenant leading out. Now there was a reason for this. You see, there are other places in the Old Testament where people approached the Ark of the Covenant, but they were unauthorized to do so, and they were immediately struck down dead. In 1 Samuel 6, verse 19, 70 people died on one occasion. And why was this? Because the Ark of the Covenant was only meant to be approached by blood. You see, if we do not approach God on the basis of shed blood to make atonement for our uncleanliness, for our sin, then we won't meet Him as friend, we will meet Him as judge. So the officers were saying, don't come close to the ark and don't presume upon the holiness of God. Our God is a holy God. But the point that Joshua says here, the point and the purpose of this, the reason why Joshua says you are to follow the ark is because Joshua is saying God Himself is going to lead us. He will guide us. We've never been this way before, but don't worry. Follow the ark. Follow the presence of God. You know, when my Bella was much younger, we were driving along in the car, and I've, I've found that I often have the best conversations with my children while we're driving along, and I can't remember exactly where we were going or what we were doing, but I just turned to Bella and I said, Bella, do you know where we are right now? I mean, Bella, if I was to drop you off right here, right now, would you be able to make your way home? And she said, no, Daddy. And I said to her, well, you don't seem all that worried about that, Bella, do you? And she said, no, I'm not, Daddy. I said, why? And she said, because you're present with me. You're right here with me. You see, Joshua's instruction to the people was simple. Follow the ark. We've never been this way before, but all we need to do is follow the ark. We just need to follow the presence of God. You know, when we surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus, one of the things we surrender is our plans. We surrender our right to predict our future. We surrender the right to project where we want to be. We let it all go. He says, come, follow me. And we give up that right. You know, if you had have asked me a year ago, Timon, where do you think you'll be for the rest of your life? I would have said, the pastor of City Reach Open in Adelaide. But you see, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we surrender our rights, our rights to predict, our rights to project our own future. We just simply need to follow him. Well, look down in verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, the word consecrate simply means to set yourselves aside. Now, we know that at Mount Sinai, Israel was told to consecrate themselves, and what that involved was going through a time of cleansing themselves. They had to wash their clothes. They had to deal with anything morally in their life that was out of place. And so we can assume that this is what Joshua was asking the people to do. It's as if Joshua is saying, if God is going to do a work among you, you need to be rightly aligned with Him. 
You've got to be in step with him. You've got to be in touch with him. You've got to get everything sorted out morally with God. And do you know one of the most important things that we can neglect is to keep short accounts with God. One of the things that we can neglect is to come before him in humility, confessing our sins and acknowledging our complete dependence upon him in prayer. So many times throughout the years I've been in leaders' meetings and I've forgotten this. So many times in elders' meetings we've just jumped into the business of doing church without coming before God, without confessing our sins, without aligning our hearts with him. You know, in John 15 verse 5, Jesus said, If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So fruit bearing is not automatic. It comes about through abiding in Jesus, through drawing your strength, your resources, your sufficiency from Jesus. Look down in verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You know, spiritual leadership is different from natural leadership. Spiritual leadership comes because God is with you. The Holy Spirit is filling you. His hand is upon you. He is raising you up and demonstrating His strength in you. You know, if you, if you raise yourself up, you'll have to keep yourself up. But if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and allow Him to exalt you, and He will keep you in that place. Look down in verse 8. Then we read, And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that you will without fail drive them out before you, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Notice that. Joshua says he is the Lord of all the earth. He's not just the God of the heavens, but the God of the Lord of all the earth. He shall... Notice he shall, is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, notice that, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So how were the people going to know that God was present among them? that he would fight for them, that the God of the heavens above would be real on the earth below. Well, it's because of the same way that they came out was the same way that they would go in. How had the nation of Israel come out of Egypt? They'd come out by God's mighty power parting the Red Sea. And how would they come in to the land of Canaan? By God's mighty power parting the river Jordan. You see, the same way that they came out was the same way that they would go in. You know, the way that the New Testament retells the story of the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan is that it sets it up as a picture of our Christian experience. Coming out of Egypt is coming out of our old life. 
It's a picture of our conversion. We were once under the slavery of sin, but we've been delivered. We've been redeemed. But as wonderful as it is to be freed from slavery in Egypt, Israel was bought out so that they would go in. They were bought out of Egypt so that they could inherit the land of Canaan. But Canaan is not just a picture of heaven, as some hymn writers have suggested. Because the land of Canaan, there was also battle and conflicts. No, Canaan is a picture of entering into that life of dependence on God. It's a picture of the quality of life where you come in and you abide in Christ. And your life is characterized by His presence, His protection, His provision. A life where God is not just the God of theory, He's not just the God of the heavens above, but He's a God who's really at work in your life on the earth below. And it's not a life where there aren't any spiritual conflicts. There'll be many spiritual conflicts that we'll experience. Just as the people of Israel, when they came into the land, they had many enemies to fight. We will have many spiritual conflicts. We'll have conflicts with the world. We'll have conflicts with our own flesh. We'll have conflicts with the devil. But in the midst of those conflicts, God wants you to experience His provision, His protection, His presence. You know, there was once a competition for uh, the best painting that could actually depict peace. And the runner-up for this competition was a painting that you would expect peace to look like. It was a painting of these rolling hills, this serene countryside with rolling hills and rolling meadows. But the actual painting that won was a painting that was right on the coast in the midst of a storm with these huge waves just beating the coast line. But there, in the cleft of the rock, there was this mother bird in the nest with its chicks, protecting, present with those chicks. You see, God doesn't want to just be the God of the heavens above in your life. He wants to be the God of the earth beneath. He wants to lead you into the quality of life where you know His protection, you know His provision, you know His presence, even in the midst of conflicts. But how do you experience the reality of God in your life? How do you experience the reality of the God in the heavens above working in your daily life? Well, look down in verse 14, we read this. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout the time of harvest. The, the author here wants us to know that the Jordan was not just a trickle at this time. It wasn't like, you know, the great river Torrens here in Adelaide, just a, a trickle. It was in full flood. So when the priests dipped their feet in the brink of the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing towards the Sea of Acrabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. 
Now the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. See, how did they experience the reality of God working in their lives? It was through trust and obedience. They had to trust what God said, that He would part the waters before them. But then they had to obey. The priests had to dip their feet in the river Jordan. If they didn't dip their feet in the river Jordan, then the waters wouldn't have parted. They needed to trust and obey. You see, the same way you came out is the same way that you will go in. You know, we've looked at it from the Godward perspective. The way that Israel came out was through God opening the Red Sea. And the way that they went in was through God opening the River Jordan. But there's also a manward perspective. We need to trust and obey the Lord. They had to trust in God's Word to them. and had to follow what He was saying and then they had to obey by putting their feet in the water. You know, the way you became a Christian was by faith, by faith in the gospel, and as Paul says, obedience to the truth. And the same way is that, the, and in the same way, you'll experience God working in your daily life through trust and obedience. You see, faith is that attitude that trusts the object of our faith to work on our behalf. You know, you all demonstrated faith when you came here today, if you came in a vehicle. You put your trust in that car to get you here safely. And so faith is handing over the control of our life and saying, God, I believe in your promises that you've made to me. But then obedience is stepping out and doing what God commanded, believing that when you put your foot in the River Jordan, the waters are going to part. You know, we must surrender our lives and consecrate ourselves in humility to God. But then we must obey where he's leading us. You know, some of us strive and we strive and we strive and we need to remember that the Christian life is about dependence. It's about walking by faith. As the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2 verse 20, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. But others of us, while some of us strive, others of us are looking for God to do what he's called us to do, which is obey. You know, this one time I was counseling this man and he had started dating a non-Christian woman. And I took him to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and I showed him that this is not what the Lord would have for his life. And I told him that he'd better turn back to the Lord and obey what the Word of God was saying. Well, he turned to me and he said, why don't you pray that if God wants me to break up with this girl, that she will break it off with me. And I told him, I'm not going to pray that. Because that was not the Lord's responsibility. That was his responsibility. His responsibility was to obey. He needed to break it off with her. So trust and obey. As the old hymn says, for there is no other way <laughs> to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. To surrender your life to God and be dependent on Him and then obey what He is saying to you. 
Now, as we come into Joshua chapter 4, we see that the Lord commanded Joshua in verse 2 this thing. He said, Take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And so Joshua did that very thing. He got 12 men to get these 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, and they put them in a place called Gilgal, where they were staying that night. But you know, the Lord never does anything by random. He always has a purpose in everything that He does, and there was a purpose behind this action. Look down in verse 6, the Lord says, In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them that the waters of Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And in verse 21, he says a similar thing. He says, in the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, so this is not just your children, but this is the generations to come, when they ask, what do these stones mean? Then tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Now, do those words ring a bell with anyone here today? When your children ask you, what does this mean? Have you seen those words anywhere else in the story? Well, in Exodus chapter 12, when they came out of Egypt and they experienced the Passover, Moses said this to them in Exodus chapter 12, verse 17, that they were to celebrate the Passover on a certain day every year. And then he says in verse 26, he says, and when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then you're to tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over our houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. You see, God had set up a two-fold testimony to their deliverance. The Passover, which celebrated the fact that they came out of Egypt, and then these stones of Gilgal, which celebrated the fact that God had brought them out so that they would enjoy the land of promise. But there is a major difference between these two testimonies. The Passover event was an event in history, and it was celebrated once a year on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar, and they still celebrate it now once a year, because it is a once-for-all event. Whereas the stones of Gilgal were this permanent reminder set up 365 days of the year. So as you went to work, you might pass these stones and they would remind you that God not only brought you out, but God brought you in. As you were taking your kids to school, your kids might say, what are the stones there? And you would say, well, they are a reminder to us that God not only brought us out, but he brought us into this land so that we would be his people, so that we would rest in his strength, his wisdom, his sufficiency. You see, God has brought us out by a one-time event, by our conversion. And we remember that often in communion where we remember the cross of Jesus shed on our behalf, His blood shed on our behalf. But we are also to remember that God brought us out to bring us in. You know, often we forget that that's the purpose of the Christian life. We're not just to wander around in the wilderness in disobedience, but God has brought us out so that he might bring us in, so that we might experience intimacy with Christ, so that we might abide in Christ. 
Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life what? More abundant. He brought you out to bring you into a quality of life where you might experience his provision, his protection, his presence in your life, even in the midst of the conflicts, even in the midst of the storms, you experience God working in your reality. He's not the God of the heavens, just the heavens above. But he's now the God of your experience. You know, we really only know as much about God as we experience of God. That's about as much of God as we really know. You know, our theology may be bigger than our experience of God. And of course, that will often be the case, and it'll be the case here for City Reach Oakton because you've had faithful pastors and teachers for many, many years, way beyond me. You've been taught well. You've been taught well the truth of the Scriptures. So you can have often more thoughts about God and and everything like that, but what you really know about God is what you actually experience God. You see, you can say that God is the one who parts the waters, but you only know that He parts the waters when you put your foot into the river, when you trust and obey. And you see, people who trust and obey and who then experience the presence of God, who then experience God working in their lives, that gives you a zeal, a passion, a trust, an enthusiasm. You really know that God is the one who will bring you in, who will fight on your behalf, who will fight those spiritual battles. So he has brought us out to bring us in. You know, as I was preparing this message this week, the Lord was speaking to me. I realized that over the past few years, I've gotten off track. My theology has been bigger than my experience of God. I mean, I have a master's of theology. I read a lot of theology textbooks. (laughs) But I've realized that God doesn't want me just to know Him as God of the heavens above. He wants me to know that He is the God of the earth below. The God who is real in my experience. And I'd got off track because I'd taken back control and was trusting in my own gifts and abilities and ability to preach and all of that to build a church. And I'm so thankful to my father who has disciplined me and got me back to the place where I'm surrendered. Where am I going? Father, I'm following your presence. I'm following you, Jesus. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. You're my protector. You're present with me. You know, I've said it before, I don't know what my future holds, but I know it sounds cheesy, but it's true. I know who holds my future. And City Reach Oakton, as we come to the end of this message, I just wonder whether the Lord isn't speaking to some of you. Because God has been the God of the heavens above, and you know a lot about God, but He hasn't been the God of your experience. To be quite honest, your Christianity isn't working. You've been wandering in the wilderness. Well, he brought you out to bring you in. He brought you out to bring you in. Now, I'm not saying there won't be spiritual conflicts and there won't be difficulties. There are much difficulties in the Christian life, just as there was for the people in the book of 
for, for Joshua. But he brought you out to bring you in. And maybe today what God is saying to you is he wants you to consecrate yourself, to come back to him, to surrender to him, to give up control to him, confess your sins to him. Say, God, I want you not just to be the God I believe in in my mind, but the God who works in my experience. And then you need to trust him. And you need to obey him. You know, City Reach Oakton, we've never been this way before. You know, God is leading us in new territory. We don't know what the future is going to hold for us as a church. It's okay. Follow the ark. Follow Jesus. He will lead. He will guide. He will direct. And consecrate yourselves. Put yourself in that place where He is now ruling and reigning over your heart. Confess your sins and consecrate yourself before the Lord. Maybe the Lord is calling you to do that this morning. Maybe you've got off track. It's calling you right now to do that, right here, in this place, in this moment. The Lord is calling you back to himself. Come back to me, child. Come back to me. Maybe that's what he's saying to you right now. Well, let me pray for us, hey? Let's stand together. Let's pray. Lord, you call us out so that we might go in. You don't just take us out of the bondage of our sin, but you call us into a quality of life where Jesus is filling us through the Holy Spirit is present in our lives, even in the midst of difficulties and struggles, He becomes our provision, our protection. He's our defender. He's our sufficiency. He's our strength. He means everything to us. And we can get off track, Lord, because we can strive and strive and strive in our own strength. Or we can disobey and say, no, I won't do that. Lord, but we thank you that you're a good father who disciplines those you love to lead you, to lead us back to yourself so that we will uh, live out the quality of life that you have actually provided for us in Christ. Oh Lord, I pray for anyone here today who's realized that they're... <laughs> Their theology doesn't meet their experience. I pray that you would speak to them now to, to be honest and to come back to you and surrender their lives to you right now. Oh Lord God, we worship you. We honor you. Great is your faithfulness. You are so good to us. You're speaking to us. You're here with us. It's all about you, Lord Jesus. All about you. You will lead all of us. You will lead this church. This is your people. Thank you, Lord.